The Guardian. There is no doubt that we've been living beyond our means, and we're going to have to make some adjustments. So that's how bad things are. This is how far we've been living beyond our means. That is the legacy that our generation threatens to leave the next unless we act. It's become a commonplace on both sides of the Atlantic to say it. And this week on the Business Podcast, we'll be asking whether we have indeed been living beyond our means. I'm Tom Clark. Not only are governments up to their eyes in debt, so too are households. In Britain, we've averaged out at around £10,000 each, and that excludes mortgages. Last month, when David Cameron hinted people should start paying off their credit card bills and sorting out their finances, all hell broke loose. Expert economists lined up to explain to him that the drip of credit was the drip that was keeping the British economy going. It turns out the Treasury needs us all to keep spending and not saving or paying off our debt. But what is good for the country might not be good for us, as John Maynard Keynes pointed out with his famous paradox of thrift. So where have we got to and why have we got there? That's the question that has been occupying Sheldon Garron, an economic historian at Princeton. His new book, Beyond Our Means, sets out to explore why it is the United States and Britain, which unlike Asia and much of Europe, abandoned thrift and went on a massive spending spree that left them exposed in the last 20 or 30 years. So, Sheldon, the slight paradox for many people encountering the idea of this book will be at the moment British and American policymakers are busily fretting away about how they can get their people spending again. Um, but you're saying they've been spending too much. Well, well, they have in the long term as a fundamental problem. I mean, of course, right now it would be nice in, in both the UK and the US if uh, the domestic economy, if, if ordinary households uh, could spend our way out of a recession. Uh, the problem is the reason they can't, particularly in the United States, is because for the last 20 years or so, Americans have been seriously over-indebted, particularly in the housing market, but also to some extent through credit cards and other things like that, to the point that right now, first of all, it caused the 2008 financial and housing meltdown uh, and also reverberated around the world. But the other problem is now that we're in this situation, because people have are so over-indebted and lack the saving, they're unable to spend the economy out of its recession or its slowdown. It holds together as an argument, but where do you think it would leave policymakers right now? It would have been better if they'd saved more in the past as places like Germany did. Is there anything they can now do to make good on that, do you think? Well, you think well of course they can, but, but it's not really up to the, the ordinary uh, individual or consumer to do this at this point. It's it's really up to governments. I mean, you know, we, we have to remember that when Keynes came up with his theories of countercyclical policies in the 1930s, uh, he didn't seriously expect it to be an individual decision that only if house, housewives or households went out and spent money that that would start the economy. He really didn't think individuals or households were capable of that, and that's why government spending was going to fill the balance and re-stimulate economies. And in a sense, we're still in that today. Uh, it really can't be done by the American or British uh, consumer. It's, it's got to be done by government spending. Now, in, uh, I can't say so much about your politics here, but in the United States, it's quite obvious that right now, because of the Republican Party agenda, uh, that uh, serious government re-stimulus is, is not in the car. Uh, 
so we're really stuck. But the American economy, at least, will not be saved by the American consumer right now. Uh, the American consumer doesn't have that capacity. In your book, you trace the origins of the almost the idea of the savings habit right back to medieval Italy and then through almost before the Industrial Revolution as, as well as during it. And then particularly this push around governments in the second half of the 19th century to um, develop postal savings banks in, 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 in what we now call kind of behavioural economics terms to give people a nudge towards saving more and you you chart that there's a great deal of commonality across countries um in in all of that happening so what was different do you think about britain and about america that meant that by the time it got to the the decade we've just been through the noughties they were they were not really saving at all yeah it's a good question i mean there is a difference historically between britain and america in this respect Uh, britain until probably sometime in the 1960s, would have resembled most of the other advanced economies of the world, from Japan to most continental, major continental European economies. Uh, Britain, after all, actually innovated in terms of the promotion of saving at several junctures. Uh, as you mentioned, it, it was the British government that first created the Post Office Savings Bank in 1861, and most other countries copied it. Uh, and it was also Britain uh, in World War I that came up with the most systematic form of, of state-sponsored promotion of saving. Uh, what uh, some of your older listeners might still remember was called the National Savings Movement. It was orchestrated by a national savings committee within the the Treasury. Uh, And this is quite systematic. Uh, uh, The organization lasted until 1978, although it had pretty much sputtered to a halt probably by about 1960. But so so Britain had systematic promotion of saving and had reasonably high saving rates. Uh, The United States, however, is is a real exception in the story, uh, going all the way back uh, to the early 19th century. So for almost 200 years, the United States has been not a part of this more global story of the promotion of saving. Um, we had some English-style savings banks in the 19th century, but they didn't spread beyond the east coast of the United States significantly. Most Americans as late as 100 years ago in 1910 did not have any access to a savings account in any sort of bank. Uh, and we, um, for about 40 years in the U.S. Congress, between 1873 and 1910, we debated whether we should have a postal savings bank, finally adopted one in 1910, although made it so weak because of the opposition from commercial banks, uh, that it was really designed to fail. And in 1966, it was abolished and more or less died in its sleep. Nobody even remembered that it had once lived. So the United States is different in the the respect of systematically not uh, promoting uh, saving. Uh, And then in the 20th century, more and more promoting consumption and credit. I think you say that partly this is to do with the idea of states' rights. You know, it's always controversial for the federal government to pick something up. But do you think it's a cultural thing as well as a political structures thing that means that America found it hard to get get its savings into gear? I mean, it is cultural, uh, to be sure. But a point I make continually in my book is that culture and institutions and politics are very much interrelated. Cultures are not static things. We can't say there is a Japanese culture, a German culture, an American culture. These cultures change. I mean, 200 years ago, nobody had a savings account. So there wasn't a culture of having a savings account until there were institutions that allowed people to have savings accounts. So you can make the cultural argument, and culture affects then 
For example, uh, today in the United States, it's very difficult for us to seriously re-regulate our financial institutions because a culture grew up that, that the markets know best, that people make individual choices. That's culturally quite rooted. It hasn't necessarily always been there in America, although bits of it have, uh, but it's interacted with the institutions and politics to create you know, a fairly strong culture that could change but tends to resist change. But in the American case, to be sure... One of the things you say is, 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 is completely correct. The federal government uh, has historically been weak. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that individual states do a whole lot. Some do. Uh, so New York State or Massachusetts had vibrant savings banks with savings banks legislation that would have resembled actually English savings banks acts of the 19th century. So, so some states are very dynamic and, and took this role that European governments or the Japanese government might have done. But most states did not take on this role. So it was basically, it was, again, the free market, uh, very little regulation, very little concerted promotion of saving. One thing that often gets said in this connection is that there's an, and people say this now with a view to China, but in the past to Japan as well, that there's a kind of culture, an Asian culture of saving and that we Europeans, Americans, um, are unable maybe to defer gratification in the in the same way. But I think you were saying in Korea, as the infrastructure of the shopping centre built up, that changed. Well, uh, certainly if one looked at, at Korea today, uh, one would see a very low saving rate. One would see quite a bit more consumption than you do probably in the rest of East Asia, um, more than, certainly more than in China by a lot, uh, but, but also more than in Japan. So it is difficult to generalize about the, an East Asian culture. The other difficulty I have with this idea of, of Asians are thrifty and Westerners are not uh, is that when one actually sits down for two seconds and looks at cross-national data on saving rates, uh, as I do right at the beginning of my book, one finds, shockingly, uh, that Germans, French, Belgians, Austrians have today much higher saving rates than Japanese and South Koreans. Uh, so we, we have to account for these differences. And now, another argument that's often made here is that you can explain how much saving people do um, by reference to um, thinking about them planning for their own retirement. Now, you this so-called life cycle um, uh, hypothesis, which um, Milton Friedman played a part in mm -hmm. developing. Now, you sound pretty sceptical in your book that um, you can look at individuals and work out how much saving or borrowing they'll do by, by just thinking, well, they're planning prudently for retirement. That's right. I mean, much of economic theory, at least American economic theory on, on saving, has, has not been very persuasive. Uh, and this life cycle thesis is certainly one of them. It, uh, you know, it's, it's a complex thesis, but basically it says if you have a young, younger, vigorous working population that, as you say, they will plan for retirement. Uh, and as the society gets older, naturally, according to theory, uh, the savings rate will go down. Mm. Uh, now, that sort of correlates in East Asia. Japan. So Japan aged. Uh, yeah, uh, Japan and, and some others. Uh, it doesn't seem to work at all in, in continental Europe, uh, which, um, all of which has low birth rates, rapidly aging societies. and yet, Still saving. And it, yes, and, and in Germany and Italy, um, saving among the elderly, the people who are supposed to be spending down their assets, uh, seems to be almost as high as, those, uh, as the rates of those who are younger. So it, it, 
doesn't seem to have explained much, uh, nor did the other major American theory that when you have generous national pension and other welfare provisions, that this will disincentivize saving. Uh, American economists firmly believe this, almost as an article of religion, uh, but they can't account for the uh, what I would have said was the obvious paradox that America doesn't have much of a welfare state. Life is quite insecure. People rationally, according to economists, should be saving up. Instead, they're spending down. Uh, European continental uh, states, uh, very generous welfare provision, and yet they have some of the highest saving rates in the world. There must be issues about how you define saving i imagine it's a sort of it's a it's a negative thing in a way isn't it it's what you don't spend would would the the mainstream economists counter you know your your point that social security doesn't explain it by saying oh but you're you're missing out pension investments or something other than saving that we're that they would i mean it actually is quite difficult uh, to define what saving is, and, and, and it's not surprising that people disagree about it. The household saving rate as a statistical measure, basically, as you said, it, it, it measures what's left over. Um, when you had take aggregate income, you take aggregate consumption, what's left after that is aggregate household saving, and then, then you come up with the rate. Uh, now, it means, it means that... Um, if you are, uh, if you put your money in the bank or you buy a stock, that's considered your savings for the year. However, if that stock or if that house appreciates in value, that's not figured into a saving rate. So I'm thinking both Britain and America have experienced housing booms, and perhaps that's part of the reason then why people haven't um, felt the need to save so much. They've been relying on these house prices to keep going up, right? That, that's that's right, and that's in a sense the core of the problem, uh, and that is the U.S.-U.K. pattern, uh, where at a certain point Americans got there much earlier, uh, since we've had government policy promoting housing since the 1930s, but particularly since the 1950s. British got there later. It's probably a sort of a post 1970s phenomenon, uh, but it has meant that um, uh, cultures again change, and the cultures, the sort of Anglo-American culture that evolved at the end of the 20th century was that you were actually a fool if you put your money in the bank for 3 or 4%, that you were much better off putting it into housing, which would appreciate rapidly. Now, on the American side also, at the same time, people said, well, putting money in the stock market would would be the equivalent. The uh, stock market, of course, has been a, more of a roller coaster, whereas the housing prices... Um, from the early 1990s to 2005 in the U.S., and I think probably rather similar here, just went up and up and up, sometimes 10% a year, and there seemed to be only one direction. So that has uh, had a serious effect on the idea of the savings habit, at least in its old-fashioned kind of 19th, early 20th century sense. Uh, No longer did people engage in what we call small saving, putting in the bank, life insurance policy, post office, etc. Americans, in particular, uh, put almost all of their, their, their assets, their surplus assets, into their houses and, to some extent, within the stock market. And, of course, we saw what happened. The stock market is always volatile, but the, the housing market prices are now about 30% below where they were at the peak in the United States. We've been talking, Sheldon, very much about um, the historical pattern of um, Britain's um, saving its thrift back in the day and its profligacy in the last 20 or 30 years. But within just the last week, we've had some new official statistics which suggest a fairly sharp rise in uh, Britain's saving rate. What do you make of that? Um, um, Are you seeing the same thing in the US? Well, since the 2008 
financial and housing crisis, all around the world, there, there's, there's been a rise in saving rates, including among the, the great savers in, in, in uh, continental Europe. But, but it, the Americans and the British certainly stand out because they had had uh, zero rates, zero uh, percent in British case, actually, a few years of negative saving rates. And in the U.S., they climbed uh, from about a low of about 1.5 percent after the, the, the 2008 crisis, um, back up to levels uh, uh, in some months above, above 6%. Um, and then it kind of leveled off in the last few years. Um, and it's been between uh, about 5 and 6%. Now, recently in the U.S., in the last few months, actually, saving rates seems, seem to actually be declining which doesn't totally surprise me because uh, credit is becoming more available again, but also people are in serious trouble. Uh, and uh, as you have rising unemployment and other dislocation, people losing their homes uh, in home foreclosure in the United States, which is a big social problem, this um, also uh, tends to reduce the saving rate because people's incomes are reduced to keep up their consumption. They're saving less. Uh, so so yeah. why money that people might, you know, as the economist would see it, be put aside for retirement ends up getting used on getting them through the rainy days of unemployment. Exactly. I mean, in fact, the the household saving rate itself is is misleading because it's a it's a very aggregate statistic, and it doesn't tell you unless you have good household surveys, and we do, but but they tend to lag behind the aggregate national savings rate. What um, what happened in the U.S. One of the main reasons saving rates spiked in the U.S. Uh, was not because poor people started suddenly saving because they actually didn't have the money to save, nor did middle-income people. It uh, was pa- basically people in the top uh, quintile of the income scale who had uh, significant margins to save, up to then had been spending a lot during the good days. And then when the crisis hit, they got worried. <laughs> they realized that they weren't going to make much money off of stocks and off of houses. So people, the more affluent Americans uh, suddenly began saving significant parts of their income. Income is so grossly maldistributed in the United States that uh, for upper-income people to begin saving at high rates means that it looks like the whole nation is saving, but that's not really happening. Can I just draw that point about income distribution you're making there with the the top fifth suddenly starting to save more? Britain and America in the 80s and 90s saw about the biggest increase in income inequality in the the world. Possibly New Zealand was in the same boat but it was really they were outliers and then sounds like they've also been outliers in terms of not saving could you just expand a bit on the connection if you think there is one there i do think there's a connection i mean and and it's very interesting connection it would appear at least if you do a survey of the first world nations that in general the more equal the income uh the higher the uh the aggregate saving rate and uh uh, this is a little startling because, again, American economists told, it, told us that welfare states would have low saving. Mm. But, in fact, the relationship may be exactly the opposite, that, uh, that states like, like, like Germany or, or, or the Netherlands or, or the Swedes, uh, which uh, have relatively high levels of income distribution, in part because of social benefits, but in part because of just the nature of their labor market, it means that you have fewer people that have fallen off the cliff into poverty. And if you have a large, impoverished, or struggling population, as we do in America, and I believe as you probably do in Britain, although not quite as much as us, but if you have a large number of those people, just uh, um, it, it 
stands to reason that they have no saving. It's going to um, significantly diminish the, the aggregate saving rate. The other thing that's very current in Britain at the moment, uh, retail inflation, ordinary, uh, the cost of living is really starting to ratchet up here. Not, I think, because of any spike in wages, but because commodities and things are going up. So it's over 5% now, whatever measure of inflation you use. Would you expect that to encourage saving or discourage it? It may do neither. In the sense that, that uh, again, economists tell us that when you're in a period of inflation that people will save less. They'll tend to take credit because their loans will be cheaper to pay off later and for all sorts of reasons, so that they will see their savings diminish in the bank because of inflation. But historically, there seems to be very little relationship. Uh, for example, the middle of the 1970s, uh, following the oil embargo, uh, initiated a period of high inflation all over the advanced economies of the world, and uh, particularly in Japan, where I think at one point it might have been 30 percent, uh, the Japanese achieved their highest savings rate of 23 percent of disposable household income precisely at that point. People got scared. At that time, it was a stag inflation, but, uh, stagflation, but people were worried about the future, and the pessimism seems to have driven saving much more than what was the actual inflation rate. But it wasn't just Japan. The other OECD countries in general in the mid-1970s all had fairly high savings rates. Savings rates went up, and it seems to have been for similar reasons. People were scared and uncertain of the future. So it's possible, of course, if you had sort of Weimar Republic levels of inflation that, that people probably would stop saving. But if we're talking about a 5% rate or something like that that's high but it's not a hyperinflation there doesn't seem to be much correlation connected with the um the slump we've had uh, really unprecedentedly low interest rates right around the world and if interest is thought of as the you know the return the reward for saving do you think that's had much of an effect well, again, that one, too, is a surprise. Uh, it does not appear that, in general, uh, um, there are some exceptions, but in general, interest rates don't seem to be very heavily correlated with rates of saving. Witness the present day when, I mean, Americans could have, in the 1990s, easily earned 5 to 6% uh, on their bank accounts, if they so chose, in a period of low inflation, and they didn't do anything <laughs> about it. They spent and spent and borrowed and borrowed. Uh, then uh, the, the panic set in. Uh, interest rates are effectively zero in the United States, and people are saving like crazy. Uh, in Japan, similar uh, in the 1990s, when the Japanese were still saving a lot, interest rates were effectively zero. Tons of Japanese put their, their money into these postal savings accounts that earned them almost nothing, but they wanted the security because people seem to inherently know that even if you don't get a positive interest rate, that every other way your money is disappearing. So at least you still have most of your money left if you put it in some sort of guaranteed savings account. And that's what's happening. And all over the world, people are returning to these um, postal savings uh, uh, banks and other, other government guaranteed savings accounts that pay very little. Okay, so the savings rates have gone down, by and large, over the last uh, third of a century or so in Britain and America. Um, could, they, could they go back to sustainable levels? Uh, they could. And, and I think the big part of the story in this respect is the availability of credit. What happened in the United States first and then the UK um, in, in recent decades uh, was a rather incredible 
availability of cheap credit, uh, whether in the form of, of home mortgages or home equity loans or consumer credit such as credit cards, that credit suddenly became available uh, in the late, uh, late 20th century, particularly in the U.S., uh, uh, Britain, a few other countries, in a way that didn't actually happen uh, either in Japan or continental Europe, where there was much more resistance to that ready availability of credit. And so I think you could say more than any other factor, the ready availability of cheap credit in the United States and the UK probably done more than anything else to diminish the saving rate because why would you save when it's so easy to get money when you can have a second mortgage on your house at a low interest rate and nobody even expects you to pay back the principal. You just pay a very low interest rate uh, and the banks make their money on fees and sell your, sell your mortgages and sell your, your debt to other places and don't even hold it. Uh, so I think that's the big reason. Well, that's all for this week, but there's more on the economic situation in the Eurozone on our Politics Weekly podcast, which will be available on Thursday. My thanks to Sheldon Garren. The producer was Phil Maynard, and thanks very much indeed for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.